Hi there, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, and joining me as always is Rescue Palm Scout and Rescue GSD Cannon. Ray. So, I know I don't post as often anymore. Um, things get busy, you know, it's okay. But I do have a good one for you. I think the title indicates enough that the minute you see this title, you would start to pull one way or another, and that's kind of going to be the discussion of today. What if we DNA sequenced everybody in the country? Everyone. Not only that, but maybe even at regular intervals, right? The point behind asking this question goes into one of my big things that I tell my students and I ask them and you know, kind of express to them that that's, this is the role of why I'm teaching this genetics class to you. We need leaders who can reconcile the forces of biology within the legal framework of the world. A good example of how this is not going very well right now is when there are hearings about you know, big tech giant companies, for example. A lot of the time you have leaders that do not understand the details of what these products are capable of, for example. The same thing I do believe will be coming for biology. The fact that we can sequence so easily now means that more people have access to genetics, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has, has had the amount of detail that it takes to reconcile some of the key details within the science, which there are many, and trust me, even as somebody who's been within genetics for over a decade now, I think, maybe, I'm not that old, um, it's still a lot and it's always evolving. So this question, I asked my students, and a couple of them actually went forward on a, on a larger project for this. The main framework for this project is, imagine that you are an expert witness called before Congress. You are for or against a bill that would have everybody sequenced in the country for about you know, $30. That equates to about 10 and a half billion. That's pretty good, $30 is pretty good genome sequencing and we're assuming that that's only the exons, right? And we're not gonna sequence the entire non-coding quote unquote genome. Now, this is a cancer biology podcast. I'm gonna come at it from a very cancer development way. I'm gonna say, you know, for example, some of my positives I'm gonna start with are obviously gonna be, what does this do for disease prediction? Not only cancer, but think about anything, right? So, going from that, quick and dirty, I'm going to go over some of the points that I think are strong on both sides. And in this, hopefully I can kind of either, you know, trigger some thought on your end. I can evaluate any responses I get from you guys too, which I do get a lot and that's been super fun. I haven't checked the email in forever, sorry. But... As you address this question, think about the complexities of it and how would we go about this if the benefit's even worth it, right? Is, the, is an opportunity cost of 10.5 billion or more better suited somewhere else, right? So imagine this. We have the sequences of everybody and all of a sudden we can start harnessing this massive amount of data. What do we start seeing when people that have been sequenced start getting certain types of tumors? Are there certain genes in these people that are, you know, present, certain gene alterations or variations that now it's, you know, we can make a reasonable mathematical assumption. Oh, wow. If you have, let's say at least 20 of these hundred variants, you have a 90% chance of developing these two types of cancer within the next 15 to 20 years, or let's say by an age range. That's not impossible. The math here is not insubstantial. 
Now to go to the con side of this, the time thing with prediction and any a con of this bill and any of its predictive time values means that you would have to be sequencing people at fairly regular intervals. And what I mean by that is maybe every two to three years, right? So that bill is going to keep adding up. That $10.5 to get it done once, that's going to be around fairly frequently, right? Another good con here is that we know that DNA is not 100% predictive every single time, right? The math behind the nearly infinity of degrees of interactions between genes, we know that we can only eliminate so much uncertainty, right? But still, the idea that we would have the math to predict when a tumor might show up, and even then, what type of tumor, and even on top of that, how bad of a tumor. And then at that stage, we would have the DNA and the science and the numbers, given that we had everybody's genome, especially in even the tumor genomes of all these people, what drugs and what inhibitors work best for these genetic profiles that look like this? And we'd have such a math, math, oh, sorry, massive math advantage that you should be able to see specific critical differences between patient groups, right? Now let's go to something a little more recent. Could something like this tell us who responds to certain therapies for COVID? When they get COVID, what is their prognosis, for example? Because as we've learned as the age of genomics starts coming in, clinical factors about a patient are very, very important. And when they are paired with genomics, it represents one of our best ways to predict and evaluate prognoses for patients. And essentially, if you had a bill like this, would it not be able to say, we can determine a mathematical phenotype of who will live, who will die? And in that phenotype, maybe there's a chance for action, right? We could also see specifically how the human immune systems in very specific pieces of everybody's immune system responds to any disease, COVID, flu, bacteria infections, malaria, anything, right? We could be able to see the fine intricacies of everybody's specific immune system, like the HLA receptors, different B-cell genes, and what combinations work against specific diseases, right? Couldn't this be applied to something like an engineered chimeric antigen receptor T-cell like we use against cancers? But like I said in that episode, the beginning of those engineered T-cells, or sorry, we're only at the beginning with these things. We can target them against cancer, but can you imagine unleashing a T-cell against COVID that we've engineered? be an interesting thing, right? COVID or any other disease, I should say. Not to focus too much on, you know, the thing that's on everybody's mind right now. In any other case, you also get some of the interesting benefits on the positive side. You can sort of interconnect the population, you know, families, cousins, things like that. If you, if you opted in, you could see that, right? Similar to how 23andMe does their service. You would, you know, I don't know. I don't know enough about the country or composition or what your opinion is. Maybe that would bring people closer. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I'm going to let that, I'm going to let, I'm going to leave that up to the anthropologists out there when they're, as they're studying the United States right now. So the other thing, obviously, and this is kind of something we already do with genetic counseling, you would have a very comprehensive profile of potential children, what chances of each trait, things like that, not each trait, but traits that we can determine a little more confidently by just looking at DNA variations. 
And then kind of the follow-up to the last two episodes, like we talked about, would it be possible if you sequenced everybody to match people that are good as a pair genetically? We talked about how like the immune system is a very big draw on that and humans are not an exception to that, how many animals do find mated pairs because of diversity in immune system. I'd say that one's probably the bigger stretch. Humans are complex. Anytime somebody tries to ascribe, oh, like humans are set in stone with this behavior or whatnot, it's typically not the uh, it's typically not the smoking gun that you'd think. Now, on that same side, I want to bring up the behavioral genetic side as a con of this bill. Data in the wrong hands can be used to paint a picture very aggressively and poorly, the same way the same amount of evidence can be used by an attorney to paint a guilty or an innocent picture of someone, right? Could you not associate and find variations in the genome that are associated with populations of people in prison, for example? And could you then not apply that and say, uh-oh, it looks like this population over here, these people, and this high, you know, maybe this person right here, they have a genetic predisposition to violence Looks like we're going to have to keep tabs over here. Behavioral genetics, remember, is the one thing that we still, as, as humans, we have to be very careful with. Humans are one of the most plastic as far as our brains go. We can learn, change, do all kinds of stuff. And the genomics behind how that happens, we are far less set in stone than most other organisms. But to a degree, there are genetics that influence behavior mental state, things like that. We see that in twin studies with schizophrenia. When you have identical twins, there's a much higher concordance, which is both have schizophrenia, than that is if they're just fraternal twins or siblings. Meaning that a genetic component to schizophrenia and other, other disorders does exist. On that same idea, I would say that probably the strongest, at least this is my idea, the strongest pro behind doing this bill is think of twin studies like we just talked about. Twin studies are fairly limited to looking and knowing that a couple people are identical or a couple people are about 50-50, you know, fraternal versus identical twins, respectively, switch that. But this study, if you had the math, it's the ultimate twin study, right? So let's say you're studying a group of genes. You don't need people to be twins strictly but mathematically, you could find groups of people that do have the same exact genetic profile, at least for a few variations, right? Then study their environment and then study what happened. Did our characteristic in question arise? It's the ultimate twin study. And this would not only thus grant us genomic insights, but this could start granting us environmental insights. Because if we can make these groups mathematically of people that across the country, remember, and not strictly related, but let's say on chromosome seven, we're studying a group of genes, they have the exact same setup and variations. Now we look at the environment and we say, okay, if we're looking at a trait X right here, which one of them developed it and which didn't. And going from there, we can maybe highlight the environment side of this. Now that leads to the con side of this, which is, Okay, you sequenced everybody, but you're still collecting information on the environment over here. Why are you doing that? You said this was a genomics thing, right? And so inherently, to get the power of the pro side of this debate, you would have to enter in and you would need environmental information on a lot of people 
to start taking the actions that are being promised by this bill, you know, this proposed congressional bill to sequence everyone. And in that case, if you're still doing that, it's not a hundred percent, you know, it's not really the hundred percent thing you advertise. Speaking of, the con side has a lot of strong points that they can go with. Number one, in my mind, is that DNA is just DNA. It doesn't represent how much of a gene is being activated, what time that gene is being activated. There's no epigenetics at all. This is very strictly going to talk, you know, talk in for tumors as well. You're going to need to have those tumors sequenced at, at different intervals in different pockets. Tumors are made of big cousin populations within the tumor, right? They're not all one clone a lot of the time. So the sequencing, it's going to have to be pretty comprehensive to keep up. And we, we're not going to be able to do RNA sequencing on everybody. It's very expensive. And God knows we can't do proteomics on everybody. That's even harder, right? Because there's more RNA variants than there are DNA variants. And there's way more protein variants than there are RNA variants. So things get complex up the ladder. And we're only looking at the baseline if we're looking at just DNA mutations, right? So... The other side of the con, one of an easy side of the con is like, are we already maxing out on data anyway? We're starting to get sequencing studies, at least in tumor biology, where you got a thousand patients sequenced. And mathematically, we're starting to see, okay, we are kind of just making the same groups each time. It's a good example in my field with lymphoma genetics. There's probably four, maybe five papers out there that sequence over at least 350 up to about 1,200 patients or up to about 1,000 patients, I should say. And I mean, you pretty strictly see the same five genomic types of tumors showing up, right? Don't tell the people in my field I said they're the same groups, but, you know, they're pretty similar to each other, right? Mathematically, does it make sense to sequence that many people? Are we really going to gain that much? Maybe this should be more of a voluntary program and then, you know, go from there. Now, on that same sense, even if it was a volunteer program, like, hey, sequence me for free, etc., you know, add me to the data... Who's going to get credit for all these big analyses? Would this be a public resource, for example? Could this be something that, like, I could pull, you know, as a, as a university professor and say, like, I'm going to use this group over here, boom, 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 right? All identifying information out up to a point, obviously. Remember, we need that environmental information a little bit. But who would get that credit? Kind of the same idea behind if we ever took an immune cell called a natural killer cell from cord blood, just in a lab bank somewhere, engineered it to kill tumors and managed to have it self-sustain, basically an off-the-shelf living drug, does the person who's cord blood when they were a baby <laughs> with those natural killer cells, do they get any credit for that? It's kind of like the Henrietta Lacks situation where her cells were taken from her tumor without any consent. They ended up leading to, you know, however many Nobel Prizes and advances in medicine. But she and her estate never saw any, you know, benefit from that. They are currently, I believe, bringing up another suit against John Hopkins. So you should, you should definitely follow that if you're interested. So the bill as it, as it stands and as I presented it to my students was, okay, sequence everybody once, what are we going to find? The cons kind of show that it wouldn't be one time. It would be a lot. And is this billions of dollar investment, could this be done better? Could you maybe sequence a volunteer targeted population and maybe do more epigenetics, for example, use that money to make better conclusions? Should we focus in on just disease biology, maybe just immune genes, for example, and say, okay, we're going to map the entire immune genome of humans in different, you know, regions, populations, as far as the chromosomes and things like that. 
there's a lot of different ways that this bill could maybe be changed for the better. Because at, at its whole, it's very simple. It's just, hey, sequence everybody. And that's why, again, it comes back to that need that we have in, in the world right now. You need people to be able to see these details before they happen and adjust things like a bill like this and also communicate that there are benefits to this even if you are against it, right? There are certain ways that you could modify this bill to make it a very beneficial thing. But in any case, I did want to kind of focus at the end on tumor biology itself because, and I wouldn't say that I'm a pro for this bill like as it stands, but as a tumor biologist, I mean, man, well, as a self-proclaimed tumor biologist that does tumor research, kind of. I'm not going to I'm not going to go there if anybody in my field is listening, <laughs> but I publish. Don't, don't worry, guys. I'm, a, I'm an actual quote-unquote scientist, um, but it would be so interesting to see specifically what triggers of what genes can trigger tumor development, maybe even just as a whole. What is the evolution of a tumor? What are the genes responsible and behind the scenes for an evolution of a very bad tumor, for example? You know, what are those really small things that maybe don't have any action before an actual tumor shows up, but they're doing something in the background for these patients that we've never been able to see because we've never sequenced this many people, right? You could also learn a ton about tumor evolution. I think it would be, it would be a framework almost to see, okay, as far as precision medicine goes, what can we do to, you know, this, this could be the benchmark for that, right? But in any case, it's a very interesting, interesting question. Um, I'd love to, you know, I think I'll post this probably a few places. And yeah, it's cool to share your thoughts on it. I think, and I, same thing I tell my students though, if you're an expert witness talking about genomics, don't get lost in the very obvious con that people like don't like. It's like, oh, oh that's gonna be invade my privacy, right? Yeah, I mean, remember the government already has quite a bit of info on you already. <laughs> And you probably give up more valuable info every time you like, scroll, do anything else on one of the tech giant websites. That being said, it's not like you wouldn't have to. You couldn't defend like, okay, like if you get a population of people that clearly have a predisposition to an underlying condition, we would probably need protections in the insurance or healthcare, you know, what am I trying to system to protect those patients from being taken action on, right? So can't just say the privacy thing. You also have to say exactly why that's going to be bad. What strictly is going to be a harmful action against somebody because their genome was sequenced and put into this identifying pile, even if their information theoretically was erased or managed correctly. But it's all a good discussion, but I don't, don't focus on that because I had too many people that were like, oh, it's just, it's just evil. That's it. And I was like, well, like, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but like, that's not the discussion we're trying to have if you're the expert witness on genomics. So anyway, I thought it was a fun concept. It's something my students really enjoyed, the ones that did it. It was kind of an optional writing type of thing. And yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts. I'll probably do a follow-up on this if I get enough, um, if I get enough feedback. I, I always thought this was kind of an interesting question. And I can't remember, it was something I read that had me thinking about it, or maybe it was a paper, like a research paper that I was like, wow, like what if we had even more going on here? There is a, there's a group at Mayo Clinic that does this for lymphomas and they, they're, they have so many people sequenced in their control from like, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And some of them are now getting lymphoma just by chance. 
And so all of a sudden we can look back in time and see what their genetics were. I think I've mentioned that on another episode, but in any case, thank you again for listening. And thank you again for understanding that I'm very infrequent about my posting anymore and kind of irregular, but it's still fun. And that's the only reason I ever did the podcast in any case. So I hope you enjoy. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.